everybody. Welcome to our Week in Review. I am Stephan Cox, along with Shasti Conrad, chair of the King County Democrats, and Will Casey, managing partner of Left Wing Digital. We are going to talk this week about bipartisanship in the Biden era, about how it's changed, about why it's changed, and especially about uh, what it means for us here at home with a state legislature that is completely controlled by Democrats. And then in the second half, we are going to be talking with Afghanistan combat veteran and King County Council candidate Chris Franco about his views on Biden bringing our longest war to an end. Uh, so today we're going to do for our first half uh, what we're calling a casual Friday. Usually what you hear on this show is a pretty polished set of talking points from us. Um, and that comes from a lot of prep and slicing and dicing. And there's construction going on in the background. If you can hear that, it's a very casual Friday. Uh, but what you really never get a chance to hear is the conversations where we prepare, right? And and when we do, we we rant and we get pissed off and we go off on tangents and we just unpack a bunch of ideas. And I thought this would be a good week for that because we're exploring a big kind of single subject uh, which is bipartisanship. So in, a, in the discussion, just to get us started here, um, I started by asking Shasti why she and Will had been thinking about the subject of bipartisanship. Well, you know, it's something that uh, comes up a lot in the party work. Um, and it's a refrain that I, I keep hearing a lot from, you know, right now in Washington state, like Democrats have the majority um, in the state legislature. They have them on a lot of city councils. Um, I'm in King County. So, you know, it's like we have, almost all Democrats and, um, you know, and all of the LDs. And yet I, I still constantly hear that like, well, but we really need to be making sure that we get those Republican votes so that we get, you know, bipartisanship support for X, Y, and Z policies and activity and things that we do. We want to make sure. And I just keep being like, no, <laughs> we win these elections so that you don't have to do that. <laughs> and I, you know, I think we get really obsessed with this idea of like, you know, the like John McCain and Biden being best friends in this kind of like old, old way of doing things. And I wish that were the case. It's just not, it's not the case right now. And so, yeah, I think, and Will and I have been talking about this a lot um, because it is frustrating. Um, I, yeah, you know, and I was reflecting on this after you guys brought it up. I mean, uh, I'm Gen X, my parents are boomers. There was always this romantic notion, right, of, you know, Tip O'Neill and, and uh, Ron, Ronald Reagan walking arm in arm, you know, through the grounds of the, the White House, going to have like a scotch and, you know, really just the, being friends behind the scenes. And that really, to me, indicates this uh, non-existent notion that both sides had the best interest of the country at heart. I don't know if that's ever really been the case. I mean, what do you think, Will? Yeah, and I think it's it's honestly it's been something that has been a lifelong frustration for me, right? I, I grew up in Florida where we've had such horrible gerrymandering uh, for basically my entire life that there has been, you know, like we celebrated in I think, uh, you know, as as awful as 2016 was, it was the first time that the state legislature there, you know, there were enough Democrats where they could, you know, prevent uh, a veto-proof majority from the Republicans. And like my entire life, no one ever thought like, oh, well, what do the Democrats think about our state policy? It was like, right. no, you lost, right. get out of here, yeah. right? You know, and then I came up here and I was like, oh, maybe people would be a little bit more reasonable. There's like less, absolutely not, right? I spent most of my time at the state party tracking domestic terrorists for, for, for like lack of a better term. And, uh, and 
and and and we saw i mean you know in the state legislature here uh not a single republican would even like sign on to the idea of having hearings about like maybe this guy who a former fbi agent had done months worth of investigating into you know doesn't belong in olympia um and so i think that this is a one-sided uh sort of <clears throat> concept where we as reasonable people want to feel like we're compromising and we're creating agreement and we're bringing people along and because we're based in reality and facts like we understand that the policies we're fighting for actually will help people even people who live in republican districts and that's just not something that the other side gives like you know i was about to use some less than clean <laughs> language but yeah yeah I, I mean i think like we're in a different moment you know like that like people um the republican party of like your you know parents generation or your grandparents generation is not the republican party that we're in right now um i think especially after january 6th and the capitol attacks in dc but also a reminder that people stormed the governor's mansion in olympia um you know, we were looking at a party that was willing to push democracy to the brink. If you if you don't if you don't actually believe that, you know, we were able to have a, um, you know, a, 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 a an election that is validated by an outside, you know, um, outside sources that it's that it was legit. And you're willing to, you know, try to basically, you know, like overthrow the government. And then, you know, like, my my buddy Joshua Freed, who's the chair of the King County GOP in King County, is throwing in with those folks and not coming back to like I understand the Republicans who are like, oh, you know, conserv you know, we gotta you know fiscally conservative and blah blah blah. Fine, okay. But in King County, you're gonna side with the insurrectionists? Get the hell out of here. And I'm sorry, I'm not willing to listen to you as a reasonable, rational, you know, sort of person that I need to engage with and win over your support to get things done. When we're coming out of a pandemic, people are suffering. They need us to do something. And I'm supposed to wait for these Republicans to like give their blessing? No, I'm done. I'm uh, no, I was going to ask this very naive question of like, well, what changed? Right. But you mentioned January 6th. But then I think Biden also uh, started focusing um, on things that are really, really popular with his policies. And I think that was a, it's just been such a game changer. And it seems so basic to, to, to give people, you know, give voters what they want. No longer focus on pleasing the elected officials, but rather go directly to the voters. Why do you guys feel like this? It feels like such a revelation. Well, I think it's because, you know, even though there've been a lot of people on our side of the aisle who have been frustrated about this for a while, and we actually have been governing in a way that sort of helps everyone, it's this sort of continuing to bash your head against the wall because we don't have an understanding of like what is different, right? Um, and I think that the thing that we truly haven't internalized yet as, a, as an entire sort of party here in Washington state is that we just don't have the same structural barriers to actual representative democracy that exist at the federal level. Right. And so like we have an independent redistricting commission here, like to the, you know, there's not really very much gerrymandering. The population is just very clearly concentrated in areas that are going to give us majorities in the state legislature going forward. And that doesn't mean we can take it for granted. Right. But it means that our incentives have to change because it's actually the majority of people in our state who we need to be helping, because if we do that, and we don't let Republicans sort of like recalcitrance and, and refusal, you know, refusing to cooperate, uh, like taint that concept, or if you know, if we don't allow them to sort of pollute the policy that we're trying to pass, then 
we just have a much better chance of staying in power, right? The pendulum doesn't swing automatically. It's not a force of nature that does this, right? This is like people making decisions, right? Um, and so I think that we just have not yet realized the agency that comes with that paradigm shift, which is understandable, right? Because it's been this way for a very long time where Washington state has been a relatively competitive back and forth system because we've had a brand of the GOP here that has been more willing to differentiate itself from the national sort of far right movement. And that's just like done, right? There's no, there's, there's no one else who's willing to cooperate. I was just going to jump in and say, yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that sort of rhetoric around like, well, the pendulum swings. And I think that's a really good and uh, important point that it doesn't just do it automatically. That like, I mean, this is a whole ecosystem. It's like those of us who work in trying to get people elected, you know, like it's our job to get those folks there. And then, you know, they've got to do the right things of making sure that these policies get passed and everything like that. But, you know, it's, we have been seeing this in, in you know, kind of, uh, additional support of Democrats in like, for instance, here in King County, we're not really a swing county anymore. You know, we really have, these are, and that comes from demographic changes that comes from, um, you know, sort of people electing effective politicians who are getting things done, people being happy with their people that are representing them. Um, And what people want is they want to see action. I think like on both sides, um, people are frustrated by government feeling like it's a game, that it is this sort of like, you know, we spend so much time on this strategy of like trying to win over this person or this person, this person, instead of being like, people need this. People need action. They need help. They need support. I'm going to do what's best for the people that elected me. I'm not going to do it because of political will or because of, you know, my own reelection efforts. I'm going to do what I think is what my constituents want. So. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think the good news is that it does redound politically, right? Mm-hmm. If you continue to serve people, uh, it's going to come back to you at the ballot box. And I, I keep thinking about this piece that Dan Pfeiffer wrote in the message box. Um, where you talk about the whipsaw effect and everybody is assuming, you know, that the, the Dems are going to lose in 2022. I'm talking at the federal level now. Um, and, you know, I think they're looking at historical trends, but they're not considering the fact that the overreach that a lot of presidents in the past have paid for during the midterms is because they overreached in, with things that were unpopular. The ACA was unpopular at the time. Uh, Trump's tax cuts were unpopular, and really so is he. Um, but the outcome may be different when you're pushing for something that voters actually like. I mean, the vast majority of voters really like the provisions of the AJP, right? Um, and, you know, and, and it gets even more popular when we talk about how you're going to pay for it. So, you know, are there are there certain things in your mind that you think like we could we could really learn from that and implement some of that same thinking here at home? Yeah, yeah, and I think that there's it, it comes down to not just what you prioritize, but how you craft the policy, right? So like I didn't intend to be wearing this shirt on the podcast today for, but for I love audio it. listeners. But, so, so for it's, audio it's listeners, my, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's my uh, campaign shirt from from volunteering for the Warnock campaign in the runoffs. Um, and so I think that like this is it was a very clear message, right? Two thousand dollar checks, right? And so we we got that through. We delivered. People felt that in their real lives, right? And so I think something that we are seeing now is almost the GOP kind of like paying the piper for this false populism that they've been peddling for the last like four years, really, right? Because the problem has always been these structural like sort of 
silos, right? We don't have a lot of local journalism um, in these rural communities where Republicans are still dominant. We, you know, it's, there's no equivalent to the billion dollar propaganda machine on the right that, you know, Fox News and Newsmax and OAN are. But even those people like, you know, Tucker Carlson of all people, right, is still talking about antitrust issues and like the fact that corporations are not doing enough. He's wrong about why that's the case and his policy solutions are bad, but he's at least validating to the people who are listening to him that like these things are problems that exist and should be fixed. So then when Biden or in our case, the state legislature is doing things like the working families tax credit, um, you know, it's hard for people to not see that in their lives. Like, oh, both sides are telling me this is a problem. Democrats did something to fix it. I should probably give them credit for that. Right. But it's we it's designing the policy in like a very visible, like tangible way rather than this. I think part of the ACA's problem was that it was just like designed to be as like as intrusive or as least intrusive as possible. Right. And so I think we've just like learned that lesson finally. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's that bipartisanship that you're talking about, Shasti, where people are like, oh, well, we should probably water this down so that we can get a couple of Republicans to vote for it. It's like, no, you're making it harder to win. <laughs> You know? Yes. And I think this is actually where like the you know, our folks here in Washington state can can actually learn something from how Biden is sort of managing this moment on um, a national level, because, you know, I think a lot of us, even even as solid Democrats, were kind of like, well, we'll see how Biden does. You know, we didn't have this sort of like he's going to be a really revolutionary um, president. And in fact, like he's been incredibly progressive and he's been helping lead um, we, on one of the last shows we talked about. I think his experience in the Senate has really helped him to understand how to message from the executive office to move things uh, in, in Congress. And I think he's done a really great job of like being like, we're going to stand for the things that we know are po we know this is popular and it's going to help people. And if these Republicans don't want to get on board, fine, we don't need them. We're going to just do what we need to do. And and if Democrats will hang together, if this coalition of That's progressives it. and centrist Democrats will hang together, we can get things done. And guess what? You're going to get reelected because like Will just said, people, turns out, love it when they get the $2,000 checks from government. They love it when it's really easy to get a vaccine at a mass vax site because, you know, like it's we're ahead of schedule. When has government ever been ahead of schedule? You know, like people love that stuff. And if we keep doing that and stop getting held back by this, like, oh, but what are the Republicans going to do? And we also have it in our minds that we're about that we're going to lose in 2022. If we stop doing that and just focus on getting things done, guess what? People are going to want that to keep going and they're going to vote for the people who are doing the work. So that's what we've got to just stick with. And, and kind of don't we have an imperative to do that? As, not only do we have an imperative to do that as Democrats, because that's the reason why we get into office. We don't get into office to hold power. We get into office to use power. But then also I think about what Will was saying earlier about Tucker Carlson, you know, trying to make this sort of populist appeal. We got to get there first. <laughs> we, we have to get there first because the consequences, if we don't, are, are just too, uh, too, too horrifying to to, to consider. Um, and, and then Chastity just kind of looping back on something that you said, really haven't the, the, the Republicans kind of opted out of the game entirely anyway. They, it seems like they've self-selected out. And, you know, like McConnell said, no Republican is going to vote for the AJP. He kind of liberated the Democrats, right? He incentivized progressives to go even bigger. And we did. Should we send him a card? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah. I think that like it's it's the it all comes down, and I want to make sure that we're you know staying a little bit on the track of like what this means for state policy because I think this is one of those like a, a, another sort of insidious false assumptions, right? Where you think, oh, the closer you get to people's actual daily lives, the more like connected you are with people's needs, and therefore there should be more room for people to compromise and find you know things because Congress can bicker all day you know about X, Y, or Z, but like at the end of the day, the road's got to get paved, you know, the kids got to get to school, school, but like all this stuff has to happen. And the answer is no, right? Like Republicans here are just as bad, right? As they are like, Drew, there are, there are plenty of folks, you know, Sutherland was telling people to organize for a civil war, right? They wanted to try and institute an electoral college in Washington state in the governor's like election for no apparent reason, just because they can't like appeal to majority of voters. And so I think like, we just have to keep hammering this point home that it's about passing policy like the working families tax credit here and like the way that we've, you know, competently managed this vaccine rollout. Um, of course, there's been some like equity issues, but those are longstanding, you know, uh, systemic issues in public health infrastructure we couldn't solve overnight. Um, and and it's, we just have to keep delivering for people, right? Like that's the that's the end of the end, end result of this, you know. Chesty, I have, I have a question for you. Um, cause I've been thinking about the way, cause I grew up in California and you were just there and you know, what they have basically done is sent the GOP into a permanent wilderness, wilderness there. Mm -hmm. Can we do that here? I absolutely think we can. I think we're heading in that direction. I was just talking to one of the state senators about actually Hawaii uh, being an example where it's basically all Democrats and, and then like, you know, there's still fights. It's not like it's like, you know, it's everything is puppies and kittens, but it's like between progressives and more moderate Democrats. And I'm fine with that reality because at least those are people that are committed to a functioning government. And it's committed to like, you know, these are people who want to help others. And it's about which pathway to do that. I, that's wonderful. Like that's a wonderful conversation to be having. And I, if Republicans wanted to come back to the table and, you know, were to say like, that's right, we don't stand with the insurrectionists, maybe there's room to, to have those types of conversations. We're not there now. The other point I want to say is uh, the state legislature is obviously incredibly important. I do like, I know in a week or two, we're going to have a show about um, what's been happening in session. But I also want to say city councils. And, you know, who is the mayor of the city? And people, we focus on Seattle, but like, you know, I know like Bellevue City Council, um, you know, Kent, like there's there's cities across King County that, you know, these folks say they're nonpartisan, but they don't operate that way. And in fact, you know, even some of those Democrats, like because they're seeking bipartisanship, they actually water down so so many things that could help people in those cities and that is that's a real issue i mean like you know what we're seeing around um the settlements of of in families who've been shot by the cops in our own region right like these decisions are getting made as to whether or not they're going to move forward whether they're going to be settled whether um you know they're who gets representation that's being decided by the city councils so you know, this stuff is it, it. The more local you get, the more it really does have an impact on people's lives. And so, these debates around bipartisanship, when you hear people talk about McConnell and whatnot, absolutely. But it's just as important to be looking at who's who's you know leading in your town, and you know whether or not they are actually moving forward legislation and policy that's you know. And, and to be just very clear on that point, 
I bring up McConnell because I think that there's a trickle down effect. You know, right. I think that it's very, very instructive for what's happening here at the state level. And just to your point real quickly, Shasti, because, uh, well, I know you have a point to make, but um, I think about what happened in Squim. Squim had mm-hmm. a pretty mm-hmm. reliably uh, Democratic uh, city council, and now they have a fucking QAnon mayor, you know, um, and then there's also uh, similar things that have happened, not to the level of QAnon, but there's similar things that have happened in Sammamish. Um, and and so the, you, the things that you're talking about are, are enormously important. What, what were you going to say, man? Oh, and I was just going to say, like, the... <laughs> I think that a lot of the time we are also like, even at the local level, like you're saying, Shasti, presented with this sort of like false dichotomy between, oh, this could be good politics or it could be good policy, right? And I think that the overall point that we're making and that you're making, Shasti, is that like, it is both things, right? Like if you are a, if you are someone who your only job is to think about how do I increase the majority on this city council, on this, you know, uh, in the, in the house, in the Senate, right? The way you can, weaponize good policy is to say like here are all of these great things that are going to help all of these people in this swing district specifically right like we can write it into the code to say like we're going to make sure that we're following xyz map and that just happens to mean that like people in this community are going to get that benefit right and as long as it's in the policy you're going to get straight news outlets who are going to report on that fact right like that will be part of the coverage and then the question becomes why didn't so and so vote for it right if you're trying to not like a why did the democrats ram this through our you know legislature by themselves it's why this thing helped my neighbors why wasn't you know so and so like in favor of it and i think honestly a lot of that dynamic is behind what finally got steve oban out of the state senate right and now we have twana nobles who's an incredible you know representative for that community and so i think there is part of that strategy where we think like oh we have to be cautious because otherwise these new members might not get reelected like no we have to say that like i went and i delivered right Mm -hmm. and then be able to make the point of like and that person didn't right so i think that it's like both good politics and good policy and then when you're talking about this and you play it all the way through i'm wondering you know certainly being able to deliver is enough to uh to bolster democrats and embolden democrats but is there enough through and will you and i've talked about this in past shows do you think that there is enough through consistently delivering for people in the way that you're talking about and shasti you know i I would be curious on your take on this too to overcome uh politics of uh, of the republican party which is just constant grievance do do we think that that's enough to bring certain people around say what's just the mythical you know uh trump obama voter shasti what do you think yeah i mean i i think one piece of that is that First of all, I think there's a difference between the Republic saying we're kind of done with the Republican Party and Republican officials versus people, right? Like your cousin or your, you know, your uncle. Those are the ones I I think we should focus on. Yeah, those like you don't give up on we don't give up on people. You know, we we do what we can to bring those to have those like heartfelt conversations to connect with them to say, like, look, like this is why we're going in this direction, because we actually think that it'll help people even like you, like there's room, we're a big tent, there's room for you to come over. We're talking about like the party and we're talking about people who as elected officials are just have fallen in with this type of rhetoric and this and and know is their policy, right? Like not any kind of new fresh ideas. It's just all the, everything is bad. Everything is, you know, it's all meant to be stopped rather than, you know, two parties coming to the table to say like, you know, let's work on something together. The other thing that I think is important 
and we saw this play out in the you know in the 2020 election is you know we may have lost sort of rural white americans for a little bit but if we and continue to focus, then build the electorate, expand the electorate with people of color, those we're gonna keep winning. You know, the demographics are shifting in that way. And you know, what you saw between like, you know, Arizona and Georgia, those are examples of when you do organizing in like led by community leaders who speak the language, who know their folks, and you get those people to participate, you're gonna win. And so we have to stop trying to be like, well, what about it's like we it's like, you know, 99 people will support you and it'll be the one person that doesn't and you just fixate on the one. It's like we're going to have to get past that and let go a little bit of like we may have lost them for a cycle or two or a generation. But there's all these other wonderful people out here, young people, people of color who we can engage and bring into this process who need us and who will like need need us to do get good things done for them and who will support us when it's time to get reelected yeah and I, and I think there's something even you know like more even deeper to go into that shasti of like we've seen that that model works because like our state legislature you know i'm sure you've seen the headlines about it right 2018 most diverse in washington state history 2020 even more diverse right and we've gotten not a surprise right these two things are not disconnected we've gotten the most like worker centric and like working family centric budget out of the state legislature this session that we've ever had right so much so that even republicans were forced to come on board right that's the way to do bipartisanship right is to is to just say like we are going to deliver for the people in your district and if you don't want to be asked why didn't why weren't you on board with helping me you've got to come and vote for this thing right not to say how do we bend over backwards to make sure that you're part of this coalition with us mark my words leaving session the same thing that's happening on like you know like the american rescue plan and the infrastructure plan and whatnot that like you have republicans being like guess what you just got all this money you know i just brought all this money into my district and you're like yeah you voted no on it mark my words coming out of session we will have republicans in this state who will be claiming victory on bills led by democrats that they will claim like good on me for having brought this to my district and by the way they voted no i think that a really good way to sort of have us just like put a button on this conversation is like shasti i know you've been working with you know king county dems in 2020 to sort of really fill the ranks of our pcos right and those are sort of the most ground level you know organs of the party like these are people who are going out and talking to people in their neighborhoods and i know that you know a large part of that drive was to bring a more inclusive core of pre-COs can you talk just like close us out here with you know the expectations that those people had and and how you think that they are sort of like seeing this conversation unfold now that we've got you know actual leaders in the legislature who are getting stuff done yeah so so the base of the uh of both party systems um really are precinct committee officers who are in charge of organizing their communities and their precincts and you know we did a big push at king county democrats uh last year to get one of the most diverse bases of precinct committee officers elected and we did that um and and you know the thinking behind it was um you know, more organizers, the better, um, you know, more progressive votes are going to come out of King County for statewide initiatives and statewide elected offices. So we needed more people organizing, getting those votes out, but also like who's making up the party. 
determines who's in leadership, you know, determines who gets supported, um, who's representing the party to communities, you know, to, and to younger people. And so women, you know, all, all of those things, uh, sort of, um, signifiers that have often been left out of being in those seats of leadership. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and, and, then you don't have to worry about the Republicans because you're just like this force of organizing um, and you're able to support, you know, awesome people getting elected who then you get to send off to Olympia and to DC and to your city councils and your school boards. And then they do things that are good. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, that's what we really wanted to, to focus on and, and to build a strong party. That's why I believe that the party actually does matter um, because we're the we're the base, you know. We're the organizing machine. This PCO agrees with you. Well, I think that's uh, that's about it, gang. Uh, we've 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 vented our spleens, right? <laughs> yeah. So this week, President Biden announced that he would be pulling all remaining troops out of Afghanistan in September on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, effectively ending our nation's longest war. To talk about this, we have our friend Chris Franco. He is an Afghanistan combat veteran. He's also the director of military and veterans affairs with the Truman National Security Project. And I should mention that he is also a candidate for King County Council in District 9. I asked Chris what his thoughts were when he first heard Biden's announcement about the withdrawal. Yeah, I think initial reaction was just uh, pausing and kind of sitting with that for a second, the complexity of what that means. Uh, I mean, part of me is ecstatic that we're ending our nation's longest war, uh, the war that I fought in and you know lost brothers in. And also the the frustration around you know this uh, this withdrawal coming um i think in, in my opinion without without different thresholds being met and it, it being more tied to a, um, <laughs> a a date that is symbolic and i mean i can't help but be frustrated a bit that you know it's been it's been 20 years <laughs> It has been two decades, a majority of my life, we have been at war in Afghanistan, and uh, I can't help but feel like this war has always been on the back burner and not really on the radar of our, uh, of our government, of our country, and that it has fundamentally lacked accountability and a, in a, in that scrutiny that we need. Did, did you feel that when you were there, when you were serving there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> To be honest, I mean, I feel like the, the, this war had two different phases where initially after the you know, attacks on 9-11, uh, our special operators got out there and, and essentially disrupted and dismantled uh, al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan. And, and uh, shortly thereafter, we transitioned to, to fighting the Taliban and have been fighting the Taliban since and understanding, yes, they harbor um, terrorists and this being part of the larger war on terrorism and um, but when you break it down, we're, we're looking at who we're fighting and, and why. Um, there was some frustration, I think, from a lot of folks that were out there, myself included. You know, what, what threat does the Taliban pose to the American people? And 
you know, the, the people that we lost, um, it stings, it stings a little to just think about the, you know, the amount of time that we spent out there and, and the, the role that the Taliban plays in um, our involvement in this war really beyond the dismantling of Al-Qaeda. And, and uh, I mean, shoot, we've lost over 2,000 of our service members, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of folks have been killed as a result of this war overall. And we've spent $2 trillion of a taxpayer money in this war, which is the, the same price tag for our, you know, this infrastructure uh, project that we're pushing forward right now. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's like, where the hell, where the hell have been our, our leaders been in, in coming up with a, um, I don't want to say a plan because I mean, there's been a plan, but we know that there has been fraud, waste and abuse. We know that there, we could have done more. We could have done a hell of a lot more to ensure that we handed off a better situation to the people of Afghanistan and the uh, the government that we've been partnering with over these last you know two decades. But um, yeah, it, it's such a mixed bag. There's it's it's good to be able to close this chapter in our in our nation's history in this war in particular. Um, but my God, I hope we we take some lessons learned from this war and apply to the future to ensure that we are not doing this. We're not doing more forever wars and, you know, not asking our service members to sacrifice everything. I mean, shoot, a lot of people that I served with and know have been on multiple deployments and have, uh, have had a real challenge keeping their relationships with their loved ones because of the, the time away and the, the, the trauma that comes from war, everything. And the impacts of, of this war, you know, they're going to continue for, for years and, and decades to come. Uh, we've spent $2 trillion, but that doesn't include the costs that are going to come from this, um, from, a, you know, a human perspective in the years to come. And conflict breeds conflict. We'll, we'll see what, uh, what comes here in the next uh, years and decades. And I also can't help but... Uh, wonder how the other you know, great powers in, in the world are going to frame this war and and lean into that for their own strategic uh, ends and justifying the way that they're getting involved uh, on the global uh, on a global scale in the, in the coming years and decades. So it's it's a lot. There's a lot going on with this. <laughs> I mean, you you talk about a failure of leadership, and I, I wonder, in an ideal scenario, what do you think leadership would have and, 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 and should have done, not just on behalf of the Afghan people, but also on behalf of the people who served there? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, again, it goes back to that accountability, that responsibility of, of this war. I mean, our service members don't choose when or why we go to war, period. Our leaders own that completely. They need to be working in partnership with these governments, with our military leaders and others, to ensure that we have a responsible plan whenever we're going to get involved in any war period, and that we have a strategy to get out and leave wherever it is that we're going better. Period. I just I think that's what's so frustrating, and it's honestly one of the reasons why. I wanted to leap into public service is because our leaders have failed in doing that. I think there are some that have stepped up, but as a collective, it's been two decades. 
how can we ask our service members to potentially lay down everything? And many did. And the $2 trillion of our taxpayer money that could have been invested here at home in our infrastructure years ago, like, there has to be greater ownership. There has to be greater accountability, attention, scrutiny, transparency, all of it. Like going to war is a huge decision. And it doesn't just impact us and the folks that are involved in the war from our end, but so many others. And uh, I mean, this, this war was the first time that we called on our NATO allies to come to our aid. And many others were brought into this. And the impacts of this war are going to be felt for, for years again and decades to come and in so many countries. And like that's, that's a decision that we have to own as a country. And I hope again that we learn from this and it's almost one of those like never again. Like, um, I mean, I, I support why we went into Afghanistan to take on Al Qaeda. And I think I, where my frustration lies is, uh, what followed after that. And a lot of it feels like as, as a way, like, okay, now you give a shit. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a big deal. And there are a lot of people impacted across the world by this. And, um, we need leaders that understand. We need under we need leaders that understand what that that service and sacrifice looks like, and have the same willingness and courage to to put it on on the line and understand what the the magnitude of these decisions. Well, I I will just say thank you, you know, for your service there, and uh, thank you for your continued leadership. Uh, and um, yeah, um, thanks for taking the time, man. Appreciate it. I appreciate you, Bill. And that'll do it for this week. Special thanks again to Chris Franco on behalf of Will Casey and Shasti Conrad. I'm Stephen Cox. We'll see you next time.